Amen. Well, as Sam said, my name is Mason Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Rio, and I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, Today, as we continue in our series, The Life of Peter, uh, we come to one of the most influential moments that occurs within Peter's life, the resurrection of Jesus. And if there's one peculiar thing about our faith, right, this is it. Because this, what we're going to read today, what happens to Jesus just doesn't square with our experience with death and burial, right? I mean, when we bury our loved ones, they die, we bury them, and it's not like we then expect them to show up for dinner the next night, as great as that would be. As we're flipping through our Instagram feed, it's not like we then expect to see new pictures of them on their latest trip to who knows where. Why? Because that is not how it works. From our experience, when people die, we bury them. And that's it. Unless the Lord returns, but until then, that's it. But as we're going to see today, that is not what's going to happen with Jesus. There is death, absolutely certain. There is burial. We will study that today. And there is resurrection. And I think part of the problem, part of the struggle, part of the reason why many people kind of want to go, yeah, but did that resurrection thing, did that really happen? It's because we treat Jesus like everyone else, and he's not like anyone else. Now listen to how John begins his gospel. In John 1.1, speaking of Jesus Christ and calling him the Word, John says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, that's Christ. And the Word was what? The Word was God. And that little phrase, it changes everything. It changes the way that we look at it and the way that we approach the life of Jesus Christ. Suddenly, all of the things that take place within his life, walking on water, giving a sight to the blind, and giving a voice to the mute, healing the man that had been paralyzed for 38 years, and Jesus just comes to him and says, just get up and walk. Like, like, no, 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 for real, just take up your mat and walk. You're not going to need to go to physical therapy. You are welcome. (laughs) You are healed. And so all of those things that take place within Jesus's life where you kind of want to go, yeah, but did that really happen? Including the resurrection. It suddenly begins to make sense. I mean, if he is in fact God, wouldn't you expect those types of things to occur? Would you expect anything less? What about power over death? Jesus, he, he comes to us and he says, look, I have the authority to lay my life down. And because I am God, which makes me different from everyone else, I have the authority to take it back up again. And know this, I'm going to lay it down in debt to your sin as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on the morning of the third day, and everyone heard him say this, including his adversaries, I'm going to take it back up again. And so this morning, as we jump into our text, as we look at the resurrection, I want us to do two things. First, I want us to confront the fact uh, that the tomb was empty that Sunday morning as we asked the question, did this really happen? Because I know that many of you want to ask that question, so I'm just going to kind of ask it for you. That's what we're going to do first. And then secondly, in light of the resurrection, I want Peter, this man that we've been studying this entire series, I want Peter to then share with us the life-changing, life-altering, life-transforming implications 
that the empty tomb has upon our lives today. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to begin our study in John 19. And starting in verse 38, it says this. After these things, meaning after Jesus, this this man who is God-made man, and who came into our world to defeat our sin and death itself, and who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, took our sin upon himself, and then in our place, he willingly allowed himself to be arrested, and then falsely accused and tried and convicted and abused by Jewish religious leaders, and then he was taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, where he was then abused beyond recognition. He was then crowned with the crown of thorns, leaving him semi-conscious, if not barely alive. The other gospel writers tell us that he was too weak to carry the horizontal beam of his cross all the way to the place of his crucifixion, where he then willingly laid his life down as the soldiers drove stakes through his wrists and his feet. And as that cross was then lifted up, he pushed for hours against the nails in his hands and his feet just to grab a breath until he failed for strength and he suffocated. Where then one of his four professional executioners, he, they took a spear to verify that he was in fact dead and they stabbed him in the side from which blood and water came forth, which by the way is emblematic of the life and the cleansing that Christ offers to each and every one of us who take hold of him in faith. And then all four of his professional executioners, according to Roman law, signed off on his death certificate. The experts in death said, yep, he's gone. And so after these things, John says, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, why? Well, because it was a part of the religious establishment that had conspired against and succeeded in crucifying the one that he had been a secret disciple of this entire time. Which, as an aside, noticed that there was something about seeing Jesus hang upon that cross, publicly bearing his sin and his shame that changed something within this man's life. And Joseph realizes that Jesus is, some, is not just someone that we keep in here. But he's someone that we live for outwardly as well. There is no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus. And so Joseph, in light of seeing his Savior die on that cross, he then surrenders his his reputation. He risks his business, most likely, and even he risks his own life. And he publicly identifies himself to this man named Jesus who has just been crucified. And it says that he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. uh, Translation, who used to be a secret follower of Jesus, but now no more. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, these burial spices, about 75 pounds of them in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen clothes with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews, which practically speaking means that they took his naked body down off from that cross. And it's important that you see that he's naked because they're able to see his body completely. And so they take his body down off from that cross and they washed him. And then they took a long linen strip, more than twice the length of his body, and they laid Jesus upon it. 
where they then wrapped it over his head and then they tucked it underneath his feet and then taking these spices, uh, which they had mixed into some type of a thick paste, they began to mummify him by taking these long strips of linen and coating it with this paste and beginning with his toes, they would begin to wrap his feet They tightly wrapped his legs all the way up underneath his arms and then they took his arms and they pinned them at his side. And again, taking these long strips of linen what they've coated with this thick paste, they began to wrap his arms all the way up underneath, uh, all the way up to his shoulders and then to his neck. And then they uh, attached a separate cloth for his head. And here's what they didn't do. Before they wrapped his head, they didn't attach some type of breathing apparatus just in case. They didn't insert a snorkel just on the off chance that he was still breathing. Why? Because he was dead. Four professional Roman executioners had not only signed off on his death certificate, but it was also pretty apparent to these two men that had handled, washed, and embalmed his dead body. Good grief, if he was breathing, they would know. The Lord is gone. And so having embalmed him, John says in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Which Matthew actually tells us was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, And which, by the way, was not some type of hole in the ground. This was a man-made cave that was dug out of solid rock. Customarily, it would have been, uh, it would have had a door that would have been about four feet tall and about two feet wide. Uh, If you go to Israel today, you can see a bunch of examples of what this would have looked like. Uh, Here's an image of a tomb at a place called Gordon's Calvary. And so they would have laid Jesus' body in a tomb, uh, very similar to the one that you see here. And here's what else they did, and we know this from reading the other gospel accounts, but having then put Jesus's mummified body into that tomb, they then rolled this giant stone disc in front of the doorway, which too is a very common thing to see while you're over there. And this disc, it actually kind of set into a track. It kind of went downhill a little bit, and so this disc would have kind of rolled into place. And the estimated weight of this disc would have been about 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. And so the idea is that you would need kind of a a, a bunch of strong people, uh, not like myself, maybe like Sam, uh, to be able to push this stone uphill uh, to enter in. And if you notice in this image, uh, at the bottom of the doorway, it's kind of hard to see, but you can actually see the track uh, where this disc would have set. And so the body of Jesus, the tomb of Jesus, is guarded by this stone Uh, But more than that, as Matthew tells us, the religious leaders said, hey, they they heard Jesus say, hey, you know what? I'm coming back on the third day. And so these Jewish religious leaders, they they go to Pilate and they say, hey, you got to post a guard unit there. We got to make sure that no funny business occurs. And Pilate agreed. And so Pilate sent what is known as a custodian. A custodian is anywhere between four and 16 highly trained Roman soldiers each one of which was taught to defend six square feet of land. And so these guys, they're they're pretty tough. Uh, There was actually a book written about the various methods of the Roman soldiers uh, called The Military Institutes of the Romans. And parts of that book 
were actually used to train our Green Berets before they went off to war in Vietnam. And there were 18 things, get this, there were 18 things uh, that a Roman soldier could be executed for. Uh, And let me just tell you about the most relevant one for purposes of our conversation this morning. Uh, It was sleeping on the job. Uh, They were not allowed to sit on the job, lean against anything on the job, and if they were caught sleeping on the job, get this, they would be burned alive. And so I'm assuming, I'm just going out on a hunch, I wasn't back then, but I'm just assuming that you don't have to do that to too many people before everyone begins to take that rule seriously. And so Jesus' body, it was guarded by the stone, it was guarded by a custodian, but it was also guarded by a Roman seal, which, by the way, could only be placed in the presence of a Roman guard unit and which stood for the full power and authority of Rome. And if it was broken, and here's what they would do, and everyone knew this, Rome would send out kind of their version of the FBI or the CIA, and they would track you down. They would find you and get this. They would crucify you upside down, which again, doesn't sound like too much fun. And so John says, since Joseph's tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there and guarded him with a stone and with a Roman guard unit, with a Roman seal. And then he says, now on the first day of the week, that is to say on Sunday, Mary Magdalene, and according to the other gospel, some other women as well, came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And if you know those other gospel accounts, you know that they are bringing burial spices. And would you do that if you expected Jesus to be alive? I'm going to go with no. And more than that, you know that they're talking about things like who is going to move this massive stone out of the way? I mean, the Romans aren't going to help us. So who's going to move this stone? And so Mary Magdalene and these other ladies, they came to the tomb early while it was still dark and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that is to say John, and said to him, Jesus has risen from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. No, she doesn't say that. Look what she says. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, I guess he did P90X. I know that he was younger, but he was really, really fit. He outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen clothes that had been wrapped around the dead body of Jesus, a lion there. But he did not go in. But then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then both of the disciples went back to their homes in which they had been hiding behind locked doors for fear that the Jewish religious leaders might gather them up and crucify them as well. And in Luke's account, he adds that once Peter saw that empty tomb, he went back to that home marveling at what happened. And I love that phrase. Because you can imagine Peter who just came face to face with a place that should have had a body in it, but didn't. 
work through the question, man, how did that tomb get empty? And so what happened? Because see, here's the thing. You, you have to do something with the empty tomb. It's an established historical fact that neither the Romans or the Jews could refute at the time. Why? Because their most obvious option in disputing Christianity was to go down to that tomb where the Roman guard was at, break the seal, push back the stone, grab the dead body of Jesus, and say, oh yeah, you mean this guy? But they couldn't. Why? Because the tomb was empty. And so what happened? Well, there have been uh, multiple theories that have been developed by some brilliant people over the past many, many years, and so I just want to share uh, just a couple of them with you. These are the most popular ones. Uh, first, it's been proposed, for example, that the cowardly disciples of Jesus, who, remember, at this time were hiding in fear of their lives, somehow stole the dead body of Jesus, then buried it somewhere else, and then went around telling everyone including the people that they had been hiding from, that Jesus had risen from the dead. But I think if you're going to believe that, you first have to believe that these cowardly guys somehow snuck past the, the sleeping Roman soldiers. Oh, wait, wait they, they didn't do that, right? They, they got burned alive for sleeping on the job. Okay, so you have to somehow believe that these cowardly guys, these fishermen, somehow took on the Roman guard unit and prevailed. And then they broke the seal, knowing the consequences, and they pushed back this 3,000 or 4,000 pound stone without making a noise. They, they had time to take the dead body of Jesus, fold up these, perfectly, uh, li- these perfect linens and, for his head. And then they took the dead body of Jesus, they buried it somewhere else, and then, knowing full well that it would bring them poverty, rejection, persecution, beatings, imprisonments, and torturous deaths. And parenthetically it did, for all but one, charged out into the world, declaring that Christ had raised from the dead, knowing that it was a complete and total lie. And yet, not one of them ever recanted. And so that's one theory. The second theory is known as the swoon theory, which pretty much just says that Jesus never really died. He just appeared as though he was dead. He kind of just fell asleep. But then once he was placed into that tomb, he somehow revived, escaped, and then convinced everyone that he had uh, raised from the dead. But I think if you're going to believe that, you'd have to believe that Jesus, he somehow survived the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion, being stabbed in the side, and then having survived all of that, he somehow fooled four professional Roman executioners and both men that had handled and washed his body into somehow thinking that he was dead. And then I guess from the time that they encased his head with those long linen strips until he, he just somehow held his breath until they were able to roll that stone in front of that cave at which point I guess he woke up. Um, he somehow was able to unwind himself even though he's kind of like a mummy. He was somehow able to unwind himself. He pushed back the 3,000 to 4,000 pound stone, beat up the Roman guards, or he snuck past them while they were sleeping, even though Roman guards did not sleep on the job. He walked several miles, appeared to the disciples in this weakened, battered position, and then somehow he convinced that he had raised from the dead, that he was in fact the risen savior. And then he lived the rest of his life in obscurity, I guess. 
And so let me ask you, does that sound reasonable? The, the third theory, uh, these are the three best, the third theory is simply that the women went to the wrong tomb. Notwithstanding the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state that the women were there when Jesus was originally placed in that tomb. But let's say hypothetically they got it wrong. Did Peter and John go to the wrong tomb? What about the Romans? I mean, they had a, Rome, they had a guard unit that was there. Were they confused? What about the Jews? who had conspired all of this together and who heard Jesus claim that he would rise from the dead, wouldn't you think they, who had an invested interest in this, know exactly where the dead body of Jesus was at? Wouldn't you think they would know, you would know where the tomb was located? What about Joseph of Arimathea? I mean, he owned the tomb. Wouldn't you think he would know where it was? Nicodemus? And look, like, I, I don't want to make light of this too much. But I do want to say what is unreasonable to believe about me. That is to say, you are going to bury me and then somehow I'm going to show up within the next couple of nights for dinner. It's not unreasonable to believe about Jesus, who is God, and who leaves an empty tomb behind that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you do need to come up with an answer for because it's empty. He's not there. It's an established historical fact. He's risen, and that changes everything. And if you're familiar with the rest of the passage, or if you did your personal worship this week, you then know that the resurrected Jesus not only appeared to Mary Magdalene, but later that evening, he then appeared to his disciples as well, who were ultimately commissioned by Jesus, and went around the world testifying to the fact that Christ rose from the dead, even if it cost them their lives, and they did it gladly. Why? Because as Peter eventually attests to in Acts chapter 4, it's because they had seen him with their eyes. They had heard him with their ears and they had touched them or touched him with their hands. And some of you might be thinking, okay, well, Mason, that's cool and all, but so what? I mean, who really cares? Let's say, uh, hypothetically, uh, that Christ did, let's just go on a limb. Let's say hypothetically that Christ did in fact rise from the grave. I mean, what does that change? I mean, that took place like 2,000 years ago. And so how does that even impact my life today, like now in the present? Well, listen to what Peter, this man who at the expense of his life says in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, listen to what he says. He He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter says, look, it is through the resurrection of Jesus that you are able to experience a what? A living hope. And the word hope within this context is referring to whatever you believe gains your acceptance before God. And most people, if we're being honest, most people today believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are, right? Or how well uh, they perform. It's kind of like a scale. But that way of thinking, it, it slowly begins to deteriorate when you, like Peter, as we saw last week, you fail. You sin. You, you turn your back on God. And so you start wondering, well, how good is good enough? Like, where is the cutoff mark? Does God throw out the lowest score like they do in school? 
And so you start to live with doubt, wondering, man, have I done enough to earn God's favor? And, and to be honest, the answer is no. Since God's standard is perfection, there is nothing that any of us can do by our own strength to make ourselves acceptable to God. But what is the gospel, right? It is that Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose from the grave that through faith in him, you can not only be forgiven of your sin, but so you can be clothed in his righteousness and be reunited with your Father in heaven and receive the gift of life, life eternal. And Christ's rising is by far the most significant point of that entire thing. As Paul even says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ had not been raised, our faith is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus, get this, the resurrection of Jesus not only validates to us today that he is in fact who he claims to be, but it is God's declaration to us, to you, that he has accepted Jesus' payment on your behalf who now stands at the right hand of the Father alive and testifying that your acceptance is settled and the payment for your sin is finished. This is why Peter says, look, I have a living hope that's kept in heaven for me. And the best part of this entire thing is that this living hope affects every aspect of our life, past, present, and future. It is first and foremost, it is anchored in the past. Meaning Christ, he's already proven his love for you. Personalize that for a moment. He's taken your sin, your shame upon himself so that you would not have to bear it. Why? Because he yearns to be in a relationship with you. He loves you. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, Mason, there's no way that this God would be interested in someone like me. I've messed up too much. My mistakes are too severe. My addictions are too strong. However, as you open up the Bible, you see that the beauty of the gospel is that you are not defined by the things that you have done. Or let's be honest, even by the things that you will will do. Because look, we screw up each and every day, myself included. But you are defined by what Christ has done for you. It is by grace through faith in Christ that you are saved. Your past does not define you because Jesus has settled the payment for your sin. He's washed it away through his, through his blood and he's given you his righteousness. And he has started the, new, the process of new life in you when you trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And so this living hope is not just anchored in the past, but it also continues in the present. In Romans 8, Paul even mentions that if you have claimed Christ as your own, get this, the same spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you today. How crazy is that? And so the same spirit, the same power that breathed life into a dead body, who breathed courage into a cowardly Peter, who breathed love into a murderous Paul lives in you today. Our God is a God who brings life out of death. He fills us with the power of the resurrection to defeat the power of sin, to walk in his righteousness, to be his hands and feet. And so take courage in that. God does not leave you stranded to walk this life in your own strength, but he has given you himself. He's given you his strength, his power, his spirit. And so if there are areas within your life that you feel shackled to, 
or enslaved to or if there are relationships within your life that are broken, man, surrender those things before the Lord, who alone, by the way, who can bring life out of death. And then lastly, this living hope, it secures your future. Peter says this, it is through the resurrection of Jesus that we have obtained an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Since Christ rose from the grave, he became the guarantee that one day we too will rise as well. We no longer have to fear death because we have been given an incredible hope. The hope that one day we will be with God forever. And it's not a a hope-so hope. It's a no-so hope. Christ is risen, which enables us to confidently say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I want to leave you just with two questions. First, have you considered that Christ is in fact who he claims to be? That he died on the cross and that he rose from the grave so that you'd be forgiven of your sin and have life within his name. Do you believe that? And if so, man, be encouraged. I hope that you are. The grave is no longer the end, but a beginning. And Jesus, he brings life from death, first for himself and then for every one of his followers. We have been given, as Peter says, a living hope that is anchored in the past. It continues in the present and it secures our future. But if you're joining us this morning, you're like, man, like, I, I don't know if I'm there yet. Like, I still got a lot of questions about this God that you, you say loves me, who yearns to be in a relationship with me. I, I'm still struggling and processing through, like, who Jesus is and that he did, in fact, possibly rose from the grave. Man, if that is you, man, first, we're glad that you're here. But secondly, come up and, and talk to us after the service. We would love to work through whatever questions that you may have. Or, or better yet, uh, we would love for you to join us this upcoming fall Uh, for Alpha, which is a safe place where you can work through some of life's biggest questions, such as this one, uh, in a a safe um, environment. And then lastly, uh, for you who have claimed Christ as your own, I hope you recognize that believing in Jesus is not just a private matter. The Lord does not call a secret disciples unto himself. We have been filled, each and every one of us who have claimed Christ as our own, we have been filled with the power of the resurrection to be his hands and feet. And we all, my, myself included, I mean, I'm like one of the worst offenders, myself included, we need to wake up to the reality that there are things far more valuable than what people think about us and more about what people need from us, which is Jesus who brings life from death. And so, who are you praying for? Who are you intentionally pursuing? Who this upcoming season can you invite to Alpha? Write their names down. Pray for them and then invite them. And knowing that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you today. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning and we are thankful for who you are and for the love and grace that you have 
as shown to us in Christ, we are thankful, Father, that while we were still sinners, that you died for us. And God, we pray that you would help us to grasp that truth, that fact this morning, that we have in fact been given a living hope uh, that's already been anchored in the past, that continues in the present. And most importantly, it secures our future. God, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to be your hands and feet, that as people see us both in word and in deed, that they would see you help us to uh, be sent out here from this place on mission, yearning uh, for those who have yet to experience your goodness to come to know your name. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us online for our Sunday worship. Uh, We hope you were encouraged, and I also encourage you to fill out our Connect cards so that we can get to know you just a little bit better. We look forward to seeing you online or in person at our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service, and I hope you have a great Sunday.